Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Each year over the past 10 years, the European Union delegation to the United States and the Center for Strategic and International Studies hosts the annual EU Defense Washington Forum, an annual uh, symposium to bolster EU-US defense and security cooperation. Co-hosting the conference, as always, uh, is the ambassador, EU ambassador to the United States, this time uh, Ambassador Stavros Lambrinidis. Uh, and our guest today, Heather Connolly, the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic at CSIS, where she is also the Director of the Europe Program. Uh, she also served in the George W. Bush administration as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau for, or I should say Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Heather, uh, great event as always, uh, and unfortunately, again, conducted remotely, but hopefully next year in person. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for ha having me. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and general motors defense. Sponsors are uh, technology uh, coverage. And a, a shout out, I mentioned Fincantieri uh, Marinette Marine. Check out our at Cavus Ships uh, podcast, where none other than our contributing editor, uh, Christopher P. Cavus, as well as our producer, uh, Chris Cervello, uh, have a weekly look at naval uh, affairs. So check it out. Uh, it's a podcast that definitely clears through the fog. Heather, uh, star-studded event as always, right? Launched by none other than John Hamry, uh, who made it clear that even though he is a NATO guy, he's also an EU guy. That's an important message uh, coming from John and anybody who knows him as, uh, you know, he's a strong NATO guy, but he's also an EU guy and an important message to deliver after the past four years. Uh, you know, point after, you know, despite the former president's animosity toward the EU, I think we should make clear how hard and productive the working relationships were, whether it was with state or a DOD, um, and, uh, but certainly underscored that it's a new administration with a new outlook under President Biden, very successful recent trip. Um, your conference was aimed at covering the gamut. What I love about it is it, it, it sets the tone for now, gives you a snapshot for now, but also the issues that the alliance uh, has to work going forward. Joe Burrell, the uh, EU High Representative for Foreign uh, Affairs and Security Policy, as well as the Deputy uh, US National Security Advisor, John Finer, uh, opened the conference. Walk us through the key takeaways, uh, because it is definitely a, a relationship that is, is really up and looking to tackle the big challenges across the board, whether it's Russia, whether it's cyber, and whether it's China. Yeah, Vago, I mean, we, we really got lucky, I think, in the timing of, of this conference coming two weeks after uh, a NATO summit, a U.S.-EU summit. Uh, I, I, I think, unfortunately, the U.S.-EU summit didn't quite get the, the coverage in some ways. The U.S.-Russia summit in Geneva sort of was starting to overshadow, I think, a lot of the very important deliverables. So it was a nice way to um, take the framing of those two very successful summits and then, you know, roll up our sleeves, really dive deeply into the substantive issues of the relationship. As you noted, this is the 10th anniversary. So in many ways, the European Union has been really highlighting uh, their uh, common security and defense policy and you know, seeking greater US awareness of, of the work that they are doing. So in this 10th year, 
we really had this opportunity to take, you know, in some ways section the conference, and we really did into two parts. Of course, you're right, virtually, uh, you, 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 we can't fatigue people in Zoom for a full day, so we, we, we separate into two chunks. And that our first day was, you know, both the big picture, as you absolutely said, we had a great video message from the high representative, uh, Joseph Burrell, and then I did a Q&A with, with John Finer to, again, sort of get that prioritization, get that importance of, 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 of U.S. policy uh, and, and working very closely with our European allies. But then we, we really focused the first day on strategic competition. We looked at Russia. Uh, and of course, this is where uh, hybrid, uh, even though you know NATO is focused like a laser beam on combating uh, hybrid warfare, the toolkit, the tools are within the European Union's competency, whether that's disinformation, some of the sanctions that, that we're working so closely with uh, the EU, whether that's Belarus and, and Russia, uh, making sure that we have the, all the tools we need, such an important role. And then of course, you know, we move to China which this has been really hard work getting uh, the European Union to understand uh, that there is a greater responsibility uh, towards China other than just trade, moving the conversation into the security uh, dimension. And I think the, the European Union has certainly come a long ways uh, with you know, improved foreign investment screening, understanding the implications of tensions in the South China Sea and Taiwan, obviously Hong Kong, um, uh, the human rights violations in Xinjiang, but we've got so much more work to do. And then the last one was, again, I think the most important issue to the transatlantic relationship, whether you're looking at it from a security standpoint or an economic standpoint, and that's emerging and disruptive technologies. So we had a really good session on that. So that first day was all about this strategic competition that for the U.S. to be successful, allies have got to be in lockstep with us. And we have a lot of investment that we have to do in our allies to to uh, achieve that outcome. Day two was actually the US and the EU in action. So we took a look at some regional challenges, the Arctic, as you know, Vago, one of my very favorite topics. We had the Canadian and the Danish defense minister with the State Department's uh, special representative on the Arctic, talking about climate security, talking about growing concerns about Russia's militarization of the Arctic. Then we went to Africa, um, thinking about uh, the Sahel, thinking about EU uh, uh, missions and how we engage with them. And then we took a look at NATO-EU cooperation, something we talk about a lot, and we've now finally begun to, uh, to, to make it actionable. We're starting to see really important projects. And the one big announcement that came out of the US-EU summit that I don't think was covered very well, the US can now participate as a third country uh, uh, with projects in their permanent security and cooperation um, efforts. Um, and, and we're going to be a, a sort of an administrative arrangement with the European Defense Agency. These are big steps that there's going to be more US engagement in how the EU develops its security and defense identity. Uh, and then of course, we, we ended on, on technology again in the future of military capabilities. So it was a robust conversation, but you can tell this agenda is really big. A summit isn't going to fix this. We're going to have to to spend a lot of time in engaging uh, with the EU to, to really fulfill our aspirations of an allied-centric approach to the world's challenges.
I should point out that I uh, share your passion uh, for the Arctic and all these uh, topics and, and really can't wait to be there in person uh, because it's really not the same, right? I mean, it is it is a, a great event and you have a lot of uh, sidebar conversations when it's in, in, in person. Um, let, let's talk a little bit though about the lockstep uh, part of this and I wanna get to technology in a minute, but let's start with with Russia and China. There, there are differences. The closer you are to Russia, the more concerned you are. Estonia and Poland are more concerned, for example, than Germany. Germany is still very interested in Nord Stream 2. Uh, the Biden administration has given a pass that's controversial in some quarters and annoys the daylights out of some of you members. Uh, let's say Poland, for example, but also countries on the Black Sea uh, that are subject to a lot of interference. Armin Laschet is likely to succeed Angela Merkel. Um, he's not as sold on the idea of Russia as a threat, nor as China uh, as a threat, uh, even though both, for example, Germany uh, and France are doing freedom of navigation patrols, and certainly France's deployment of a nuclear submarine to the Pacific got uh, certainly the attention and 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 uh, French uh, uh, warships regularly doing freedom of navigation exercises as well. Um, and I should should mention we had the recent HMS Defender incident in the Black Sea as well, with with uh, the Russia apparently opening fire on one of Her Majesty's most powerful warships. How do we need to get a collective view and how close are we or how far away are we on both Russia and China, given, for example, Germany has a lot of industrial interests and so does France and a lot of other EU countries, a challenge here in the United States as well. Yeah, it's a great question. Let me let me take Russia first. Um, the European Union is divided on Russia. And we just see saw that division play out in real time, where after the US-Russia summit, you had French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel propose very last minute and without consultation with the rest of the EU that they too wanted to put forward, uh, they wanted a, uh, an EU-Russia summit. Uh, I think in some ways um, feeling a little, um, a little, uh, Frustrated, uh, I guess that's the best word to, to, to use, that here um, the, the, the French and the Germans have been trying to work the Russian relationship as best they can, obviously through the Normandy format uh, regarding the Ukraine crisis, but also you had the French uh, doing a bilateral strategic dialogue with Russia and it's really gotten nowhere. And I think they were they were very upset that um, the Biden administration was sort of taking center stage with the Russian relationship and wanting to catch up. I, I tell this story to say that their effort completely failed. It was not consulted and you had uh, a real concern coming from the Baltic states, Central Europe going number one, I don't know what this is supposed to do. Uh, we have just now sanctioned Belarus uh, and, and, and the Kremlin is fully supporting Alexander Lukashenko. Um, we've just released a report that says, um, the EU says that their relationship with Russia is in a downward spiral. You can't do this. We've got to coordinate. And, and that just speaks to the, to the divisions. Several months ago, the high representative uh, traveled to Moscow. It was not a very well prepared meeting, meaning they didn't know quite what they were doing, except they wanted to have that dialogue. And uh, foreign minister, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, I mean, absolutely humiliated. Yosef Burrell. It was absolutely unacceptable. So they're, they're deeply divided. But again, I, I believe in dialogue. Don't get me wrong. But dialogue must have purpose. Um, if it is just there to demonstrate we can speak to one another and doesn't have outcomes or doesn't have a focus, you uh, there are risks to dialogue as well. So this deeply divided EU on Russia 
is a complication. And Nord Stream 2 is a perfect example of that uh, division. Um, however, uh, you know, I would say between Russia's actions, which are pushing away the European Union, um, and the strength of views uh, from the Central Europeans and the Baltic states, I, you know, I think the EU is about as best place as it can be on Russia. Certainly on Belarus, it's, it's come through in a very strong and unified way, which is very positive. But we have an incredible amount of work to do uh, in making sure the EU remains a very united voice vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And it's very hard because Russian malign influence works exactly in the opposite direction uh, to make sure that that unity doesn't happen. At NATO, I'm much more positive. We really had a, a summit that was very clear on, on deterrence and defense in the Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, we have a big challenge, but I think NATO, there is more of a, of a focused effort, I think, again, because of, of US leadership. The Black Sea, I'm so glad you highlighted this. This is where uh, we talk to former U.S. military officials, experts. This is where we're all very nervous because Russia is the most sensitive about NATO military exercises and forces. We have the Seabreeze exercise going on right. um, as we speak. And the danger that we face is a, um, a miscalculation and an accident. And although, you know, both Russia and the U.K. have differing accounts of this. Russia is really, really getting pretty reckless and unprofessional uh, in demonstrating their uh, displeasure at US, uh, US or NATO presence in the Black Sea. This is extremely dangerous. And I think NATO is gonna to have to do much more to enhance its persistent presence in the Black Sea region for sure. It's uh, increasingly evident that the Russians, for example, on automatic identification systems may be jamming them deliberately to complicate ship traffic uh, in 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 the region, which 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 is um, a, a Russian um, tendency to try to sow as as much uh, chaos as possible. It's not even chaos, Vago. I mean, the electronic warfare I think is probably the most significant near term challenge uh, to to NATO, particularly to U.S. military capabilities, because it takes it takes our competitive advantage out. Uh, if we don't have GPS, if we can't communicate, if we can't see the battle space, we are at an incredible disadvantage. This is why they are focusing so much on electronic warfare. And we need to have a lot of redundancy and resilience. And I'm not quite sure we're where we need to be because this is only going to continue and it's going to be cyber and space. Uh, and that's going to be a double whammy to really, really complicate um, our ability uh, to not only to communicate, but to have intelligence on, on what is going on. It's really a big challenge. Um, it, it, it is. And you actually highlighted, right? I mean, one, one of the great things about the Russians and Chinese, which you have to admire, is identifying the weaknesses and then press uh, on those weaknesses. And so our view of sort of ubiquitous uh, connectivity, access to space, to communications, uh, right? I mean, if you jam that, you complicate a force that is predicated on interoperability, connectivity, and all of that. So it, it complicates it not just for uh, U.S. forces within their borders, but certainly from an alliance standpoint, in part because of the disparity of, of capabilities uh, within it. We operated effectively in the Cold War. The interesting thing will be, right from a mindset difference, people were not as dependent on connectivity and so could do distributed decision-making. But um, that's, uh, a, a, you know, how, do, how does the alliance need to tackle that piece of it. I want to go to China in a second, but you highlighted that. How does the alliance tackle 
some of these rather foundational issues because the United States is expending, for example, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resources on this, but the alliance itself tends to lag and sometimes lag significantly behind the United States. I mean, there are some nations, you know, who are patting themselves on the back that they're getting Link 16. I mean, we're, we're moving to a JADC2 future, which will be very different. Yeah, um, I think it's number one, we have, and I know the, the US military is, we have to prioritize um, redundancy and uh, making sure that uh, we are exercising with uh, loss of communication capabilities. So uh, when we do exercise, particularly whether it's uh, in Northern Europe, Black Sea, I mean, the Russians are, are jamming. So I mean, we're, we're getting that real time, but it's exercising. What are the redundancies? How can we communicate uh, with one another? Um, how can we disrupt uh, Russian communication, GLONASS and, and, and their communication satellites? I mean, this is the, you know, NATO uh, for the first time at the summit, you know, space and cyber are now Article 5 domains. The, the problem is, you know, uh, getting to that point, you don't want to get to that point. You want to make sure you are deterring uh, and you are not, uh, you know, being victim to, uh, Russian electronic warfare. So we've got a lot of work to do. What I worry about, in some ways, U.S. military sophistication um, in this space is actually sort of underscores our vulnerability to if those systems go completely down. So we're going to have to figure out maybe some lower cost, low, you know, more low, um, more effective communication that we can do in case we lose eyes and ears. And uh, I don't profess to know what that is, but we better have some, you know, bring out the hand radios or something, but we have to have sort of a lower tech, you know, a lower tech redundancy in case we lose everything. And I I don't know that answer, but you're right. The integration uh, is really, really tough when we're trying to do an iterated operating picture. And we're, we, we, we cannot do that uh, because of of Russian either space or or cyber uh, interference in those communications. Let me uh, take you to the question of China. Um, obviously, there was a lot of very, very positive talk about uh, the importance for democracies to stand up against authoritarian states. Obviously, that's the underpinning uh, of the Biden administration's approach. Even some concerns among progressives and others that the administration is uh, too tough on China and moving too aggressively on China. Um, what's the broader EU view on, on China? And is the administration making progress? Because among some the administration's softness on Nord Stream was, okay, we'll give you Nord Stream, but we need you to be tougher. Uh, and the Germans uh, you know, are really torn about being tough because all the Chinese have to stop buying German and all of a sudden, right, that propels Germany to negotiate a trade deal with the Chinese that, you know, or the EU to negotiate a trade deal, which has gone nowhere. What, what, how, do we, how do we work with the Europeans on China, which is very much a common threat because people in Europe have a tendency of forgetting if a shooting war erupts because of China and it involves a U.S. treaty ally, NATO could end up at war in the just like it ended up in a war in Afghanistan that it didn't expect either. Article five can be invoked, and people will be asking themselves some hard questions then. Yeah, I mean, um, Paco, I think I think we have to take this uh, from two uh, institutional perspectives. Let's let's start at, at NATO. So again, uh, one of the key uh, elements in the NATO communique 
was some pretty robust language on China, really beginning to introduce China into NATO's understanding. Now, again, NATO will remain a collective defense uh, uh, organization to protect the Euro-Atlantic area, full stop. But it also cannot be immune to uh, global security patterns. And when you have, uh, you know, NATO's most important military uh, member that is uh, now seized with a significant uh, challenge uh, in the Indo-Pacific, NATO absolutely has a role to play in supporting uh, one of its members. And again, as you mentioned in the beginning, we certainly have the UK, their aircraft carrier, France, uh, even, even the Germans have sent uh, uh, a maritime vessel, you know, making sure that it does not upset anybody, but you know, that's, that's an important, uh, important show of, of strength. Uh, up to eight NATO allies have participated in the RIMPAC exercises. So in some ways, getting our NATO allies to understand um, that there are security risks and they're participating in that, I think is a positive, more to do. The European Union has a trade uh, relationship uh, and identity with China. And as you noted, at the end of last year, uh, there was a very rushed uh, agreement in principle for a EU-China comprehensive agreement on investment, the CAI. That, that agreement now um, is absolutely um, not going anywhere because the EU sanctioned Chinese officials over human rights violations in Xinjiang, and then China really overdid it in sanctioning EU member, members of the European Parliament, um, think tanks. It was a pretty, pretty strong overreaction. And that just killed basically the comprehensive agreement on investment. So I think that the, the, from a Euro European Union perspective, there's certainly an understanding that this is not all about benevolence, uh, whether it's um, 5G, some of the infrastructure they're, they're seeing, and this wolf warrior diplomacy, in some ways China is giving us an assist. The Europeans are seeing this is not completely benign. The challenge is, uh, and you mentioned Germany as the largest EU economy, Germany's economic model is now increasingly reliant on access to the Chinese market, automotive, chemicals, and so this is creating a dynamic where um, they are now they are prioritizing that economic relationship. So we have an enormous amount of work to do. And I, I just this is not going to a meeting's not going to change this. A consultation isn't going to change this. This is rolling up our sleeves, continuing to work at this uh, every day at all levels of government and society, we're gonna to have to move this and um, it's not gonna happen overnight. And we have to show that um, our leadership is worthy of following. We're gonna to have to be consistent and credible. We're going to have to compromise and Europe's going to have to compromise to get to a better place. And um, the transatlantic relationship really has become expert at not solving problems, shoving them into working groups and councils and not solving problems. We can't afford not to solve some of our own bilateral problems on technology, uh, you know, getting a bit more in lockstep on strengthening the transatlantic economy. That's the only way we can really sort of win strategic competition. It's not talking about China all the time, it's strengthening 
the West is strengthening ourselves economically. So we, we are going to, this is going to be a long painstaking process. I think we'll get there, but it's uh, not going to be instantaneous and we're going to have setbacks and we're going to have to keep working at it. Um, and if China continues to behave as it is, it's going to help us a little bit, but we have to do the work on our end as well. I uh, uh, lamentably have to ask a Brexit question. Um, the EU military staff was populated with a number of extremely talented uh, British officers. Uh, even some of the leading EU officials were lamenting the departure of really security-minded uh, diplomats, uh, military leaders. Uh, obviously, they exist on the NATO side of the house. Um, how has the and, and the United States counted on the UK and the UK voice in helping arbitrate and shape EU decisions? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the joke among French diplomats sometimes and friends in Brussels would be like, oh, my God, the Americans and the Brits are working us over hard, uh, you know, through and, and the United States was very effective working through all member states. Right. I mean, I don't want to make this confrontational at all. But ultimately, what is the departure of all that talent? from EU security and defense circles? I mean, what are the implications and the impact of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start with the, um, the pros of uh, the UK um, out of the European Union. And I think we saw some of the pros of that in, in the UK's integrated review, um, in which uh, we are going to see an increased uh, UK presence in NATO. Um, we are, you know, again, focus on Euro-Atlantic, but tilting to the Indo-Pacific, acknowledging um, that they, they will be uh, with the U.S. Huge focus on technology, science. That's exactly where we, we want our allies to be. And we'll see in 10 years if, if, that inve if those investments paid off. We're also seeing where the U.K. can go faster on sanctions. So increasingly, you're seeing whether that's, you know, Russia, potentially China most recently, the US and UK can go faster because they don't have that consensus-based process at the EU. So that's sort of in the, 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 the positive category. You're right, um, we did uh, rely on the UK within the EU uh, to be stronger, certainly at the foreign policy and security table uh, on Russia, on China, uh, more engagement, uh, you know, less hang-wringing, focusing on, on sanctions and a variety of tools. But you know what? So now, uh, and many, many EU countries sort of hid behind the UK. They were the, the blocker and the football team and everybody else sort of crouched behind them and away they went. Now there's no blocker, but we are seeing, and I think, again, this, this response to uh, the French and German proposal to host an, an uh, EU-Russia summit with Vladimir Putin, there was a massive amount of pushback. They were able to prevent that, the Baltic states, Poland, you're seeing this so-called Bucharest 9, uh, uh, which uh, President Biden spoke to that group before he went to Europe. He did some consultations uh, on the margins of the NATO summit with the Baltic states, with Poland and others. That's going to be the new force um, uh, that's going to be, I think, certainly stronger on Russia. We're certainly seeing stronger on China. You look at Lithuania removing itself from the 17 plus one format, now 16 plus one. Uh, but again, we really, you can't rely on any one country to, to try to, you know, get the outcomes we seek exactly as you said, 
we have to work this vigorously at the bilateral level. So 27 bilateral conversations, and then we work the problem and the institutional structures and in Brussels. That's what I keep telling. I mean, if you can't hear from my voice, investment, investment, rolling up our sleeves. It is not sending the Secretary of State in for a meeting and we are done. It is working this aggressively daily to get the outcomes we seek. Heather, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. I hope you have a great 4th of July weekend and looking forward to uh, re-engaging in a little while to give a report card on how the Alliance uh, and the Transatlantic Alliance is doing. Oh, well, Fonga, thank you so much. Yes, we have another NATO summit next year to look forward to and an updated strategic concept. But let's celebrate the 4th of July. Happy 4th of July to all of your listeners and to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.